12 verses 1 uh, and 2 is where we'll be at today. And I got a praise report I want to shout out from the rooftops, actually. Naomi and I finally found a house to rent, and they finally accepted us, so that was cool. It was exciting because, you know, everywhere you try to find a house to rent, they want you to make, like, three times the amount, you know what I mean? So it's like, well, we just don't do that as church planners. We don't make three times the amount of a house that's $1,500. So anyways, we got in with this lady who she lives out of country, and she's coming back um, pretty soon. She's going to rent it to us for nine months till we figure out what's going on with our lives, where we want to move to exactly. And uh, so she didn't ask us about our credit, about how much money we make, what our job is, or any of that stuff. So it's been a blessing that that we got right into that, and it was all uh, an act of the Lord. It was super cool. So, anyways, uh, that that's all I got on my on my part. But the title of this message that I have for you guys today is called a biblical worldview. It's something that's super important in our lives, especially in the society and the culture that we live in today. Amen. So I'm going to read this text, and then we'll pray. Romans 12. Uh, one through two. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for uh, for your word. We're thankful for this challenge here in Romans chapter 12, to not be conformed to the ways of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we know, God, that the only way that happens is through your Holy Spirit living inside of us, the ministry of your Holy Spirit, and through your word. So, Lord, we pray that you would transform our lives today. Help us not to press into the mold of the world and what they uh, and what the secular agenda pushes on us today, but help us to stand bold and, and triumphant over sin and over, over the world today as Christians. Lord, we pray that you would minister to our hearts and teach us, God. And, and I pray, Father, for this congregation that you would open their, their eyes, open their ears, open their hearts to hear and to see and to receive this message because it's impossible to do so without you, Lord. And we pray, God, also uh, for, for myself and for Rick as he preaches tonight that you would help us to preach um, as a man on fire to, to a dying and lost people. So help us, Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So uh, the other day I'm on Facebook and I'm, and I'm kind of just scrolling through some videos. I got some downtime. I'm not doing anything. And as I'm scrolling through, well, my feed or whatever, I come across a video of this guy. And, and apparently he can't see in vibrant shades of color. So he's kind of colorblind. All he can see is this dullness, these shades of gray um, and, and, and dull color. And so as he's standing there, somebody comes along and they give him a glasses case and they hand it to him and he pulls out a pair of glasses and what looks like a, an orange tinted pair of sunglasses or something. Well, he throws them on and immediately this dude starts crying. He starts weeping. He starts hitting his hand into his fist into his hand and he's shouting for joy because what happened? He's now able to see things as they really are. He's able to see the world and what it really is, which is vibrant shades of red and blue and, and green. And he's able to experience a sunset for the first time. He's able to see the yellow on a bumblebee. All the things he's been missing his whole life because he was colorblind, he can now see because he put a pair of glasses on. That helps um, to, to clarify everything that's around him. So, like I said, he had the correct view of the world with the glasses that he put on. And so the question that I ask you today is this, what is a worldview? 
And, and, and the Oxford American Dictionary uh, defines that as a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. A worldview is that exactly. It's how we view the world. And not all people see the world the same way either. You know, many people wear different shades of lenses, um, and, and it gives them a different sense of morals and principles and absolutes and beliefs. Their certain shade of lens really tells them how to perceive things as right or, or wrong. So to kind of give you an example of a couple um, worldviews, we'll talk about the secular humanists. So you might think of secular meaning like the world and, and the human. So, so what they do is they see the world as man being the measure. And they believe that all reality and life center upon human beings. So in most cases, they deny the existence of God. And, and some of the camps in this worldview are, are atheism. That's a pretty well-known one. We know the atheist does what? They don't believe in God, right? They believe that science has made God obsolete, or obsolete and, and therefore they deny his existence. And then another view of secular humanism is naturalism. And they believe that only matter exists, so the things that we can touch and see and feel and study. So they trust that the scientific method excuse me, is the only sure way of knowing anything. And they say that since you can't observe God, since you can't touch, taste, feel, smell, or see him, since you can't observe hell, since you can't observe heaven, the spirit, or even some say the human mind, they say they don't exist. And then there's another well-known one uh, called Darwinism. And just to keep it simple, really, and, and I'm sure there's some of you out there that could help me more in this, but to keep it simple, they believe that everything living is here because of evolution. They deny that there was a creator God. Uh, they believe that the earth is billions and billions and billions of years old and that we all evolved out of amino acids, out of a sludge pool, which those amino acids turned into a fish and the fish to a reptile and a reptile to a monkey or something like that, I believe. So they're, they're pretty far out there. And the secular worldview, in, in a nutshell, sees in shades of humanity and science in the five senses. They don't see God. They, they believe in no God, no judgment. So they don't see that they have sin in their life. In their own pursuits in life, is their greatest measure. If they can achieve something great, they've done something well and, and they're somebody. They got, as Rick would say, they got some clout. So they store up for themselves this vast and empty knowledge and they build empires that will crumble and they seek only to frolic in sin and deny God. Some people might think of Elon Musk, right? He's got a huge empire through Tesla and the things that he's doing with SpaceX. He can try to build it to the sky. He can try to build it to the moon. And what did God do to the last tower that they built? He knocked it down. He separated the people. The same is true with Elon Musk in a figurative sense. He can try to build as high as he wants to, thinking he's achieved something. But without Jesus, where is he? Where is he going to be? Amen. And this is not an exhaustive view, but this is how the secular views the world. And in essence, their worldview glasses dictate the way that they live in life. And so we could talk for hours about the different worldviews, such as Islam and the Shahari law that drives their life. We could talk about Mormonism, polygamy in the Book of Mormon. Um, that, that is their worldview glasses. We could talk about Roman Catholicism and Jehovah Witnesses. We could talk about Buddhism and Hinduism. But fortunately, we ain't got no time for that. Amen. We want to know one thing, and we want to know one thing only. What is a biblical worldview, and how do we cultivate it?
Because that's what we're here for. We're here to cultivate a biblical worldview, aren't we? We're here to get trained and equipped and discipled each and every, every Sunday and Wednesday and, and hopefully throughout the week as we read our word and we meet with each other. And it's my goal this morning to share with you from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, how to cultivate a biblical worldview and what three main elements are to a sound Christian and biblical worldview. And, and these three main elements that I'm going to talk about today, they're not exhaustive, so don't say that it's these three and no more. Don't hear me say that. There's more to it, but I wanted to, for sake of time, just give you three big ones. So cultivating a, wor- a worldview, a biblical worldview. Let's read that text one more time. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we cultivate a biblical worldview by offering ourselves to God as, as a living offering. So listen to what Paul says there. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And that word beseech is kind of a weird word. We probably wouldn't say that anymore. Uh, but what that really means is that, uh, is that, in other words, he's urging them. So he's urging the readers. He's urging the church in Rome. And what's he urging them by? By what means is he urging them? Well, by the mercies of God. And you might be saying, what mercies? I haven't seen any mercies here in chapter 12. And so it's the whole last 11 chapters that Paul has written about, okay? In, in, in chapters 1 through 11, he addresses doctrine. He addresses, uh, you know, he talked about man and judgment. He talks about how to be saved. God's mercies, such as grace, righteousness, and faith. As, as we get here to chapter 12, this is where application begins. This is the first part that Paul really starts to to put the ball in their court and say, this is the application part, okay? The first 11 chapters is all about God, the depravity of man, how to be saved, and, and, um, and other um, doctrines that are important. And so it is by these mercies that Paul is urging his readers to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable, or in other words, our logical service. So look at that first word or that first sentence there in chapter or well that yeah that first sentence that very end of it that you present yourself your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God and so what this does is it this urging calls us back to the Old Testament system of worship and it, it always included a sacrifice right there was a whole lot of blood in the Old Testament a sacrifice of an appropriate means was always necessary to approach God, and it still is today. What's the one sacrifice that is necessary to approach God today? Jesus Christ. We have to approach him through the blood of the Lamb, right? That's the only way that we can approach God. And, and we can boldly approach him now if we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament... Animals, like I said, had to be slain before they could be offered. The high priest would, would, I would imagine, probably slit their throat and splash blood on the altar, of, of, uh, on, on the altar and, and then make that offering to God. So R.C. Sproul says this about, about these two um, contrasting offerings and sacrifices. In stark contrast to that, in light of the gospel, we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices— not our animals, vegetables, or cereal, but our bodies, our being, right. who we are, living. So how do we offer ourselves then? Let me ask you that question. And well, it's, just, it's simple. It's just as Paul says to, he says, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. 
So God wants all of ourselves, right? He doesn't just want part of us. Um, I tell a good friend this all the time. He wants every key to every room in your house so he can clean it out. He doesn't want you to say, hey, Lord, you can have this part of me, but I don't want you to have this secret corner of my life that nobody knows about. Well, here's the thing. God knows your heart. You don't even know your own heart. He knows what you're hiding. He wants you to come clean with all of it. Give him all the keys in full surrender. And so, and here's the thing, really, though, since Christ gave his life for us, we ought to give our lives for him. Amen? And it may not be as extreme as dying on the cross um, or, or anything like that or going to Calvary as Christ did, but it may mean, and what it does mean, is that we give ourselves, our lives, every day, step by step, in complete sacrifice, picking up our cross and following him. So we lay ourselves down on the imaginary altar and we say, God, I'm yours. Anything, anytime, anywhere, just like that card that Rick had signed a long time ago, out of reverence and thanks, I will serve you. Because we talked about this a few times on Sunday evening service. We talked about the great commandment, right? And the great commandment was what? To love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors as yourselves. So to love him with all of our mind, soul, heart, strength is to serve him diligently with everything that we got every single day of our lives, not only on Sunday. This should not be the only day that our Bibles are open. It, it, it should not be the only day that we're praying. It should not be the only day that we seek fellowship. It should not be the only day that we seek discipleship. It should not be the only day that we go and evangelize. We should be doing this daily as a living sacrifice before God. And it's not just a living sacrifice, but a holy sacrifice that's acceptable to him. So back to the Old Testament, God wanted um, the first fruits and the unblemished of the flock. See, he didn't, want, he didn't want the shepherd to go and say, stand here on the sidelines and look at the sheep running through. And he'd say, okay, that one's got a main leg or a, 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 a lame leg. That one's got a limp. That one's got a defect. That's got a blemish. So I'm going to separate them to the side. I'm going to take them to Jerusalem, and I'm going to give them to the priest to give to God, and I'm going to keep the best ones for myself because I can get the most money and the most gain out of those. No, what he wanted, the very firstborn. He wanted the very best of the flock. He wanted the very best of everything without blemish, without defect, which is why Jesus Christ had to come and live a perfectly sinless life. He was without blemish, the perfect holy Lamb of God. There was no spot or wrinkle or broken leg on him. He was perfect. So Christ has already paid for our sin, but on this side of salvation, God desires the very best of us. So he wants the first of our income. He wants the very first of our day. He wants the very first of our possession. He wants the very best holy life that we can give him. We can squander God's blessings in our life by living like animals in this world. We can squander God's blessings in our life by being sinful. We can squander his blessings in our lives by not giving him the first of our time and the first of our fruits and the first of everything that we have. Because it's, it's his ultimately. It was never ours. The money's not ours. The time's not ours. None of these things are ours. It's his. And so we, we better give to him what is his first. And so I had Mike A. tell me this one time, a guy in, in Missouri who'd done our marriage counseling, he, uh, he told me this, don't let anybody ever steal your time with the Lord. First thing in the morning, don't let anybody steal time with your Lord. You might say, well, I got kids. Well, I've got, I've got a wife. Well, I've got these things. Get up earlier. You can get up an hour earlier to get your time with the Lord. You don't have to let anybody steal it from you. You can get up and have that time with the Lord. Never let anybody steal your time with Jesus. Get in your word. Get on your face. Get in prayer. Get fired up for the day. 
Preach out of your overflow throughout the day. Give your very best to the Lord. Because here's the thing. Um, we too can offer the wrong sacrifice. Think about Cain and Abel. Okay, so Cain killed Abel. Cain's sacrifice was not his best. It was rejected because it was not what God required. God wanted an animal, right? Abel tended the lambs. We can only imagine that he gave a sheep. And what did Cain do? Cain was a farmer, so I imagine he probably come and gave grain or something of that nature. Well, it was not what God wanted. His offer was rejected. He became filled with fury and he killed his brother. And you may also think about Ananias and Sapphira, right, in the book of Acts. They came and they gave to the Lord what looked like a very good thing. They come up and they gave to the Lord. They sold their land and gave, gave, gave the Lord and gave the church their money. But they held back secretly a money of their own and then told everybody else, but I'm giving this much. I've given everything that I sold the land for. And what happened to them? They were struck down. They were killed because of their sin. They were killed because of how they offered the wrong sacrifice. And so we too can offer an unholy sacrifice that's not acceptable to the Lord and it profits nothing. So serving out of bitterness or obligation is one of those ways. How many of you guys know the guy who does this? I got to get up this morning and read my Bible. I got to get up this morning and go to church. I got to go serve these kids. I have to go do this. I have to go do that. I have to go. Look, you're alive today because God gave you mercy and he's given you breath. You get to do these things. You should be blessed to do these things. You should do these things out of obedience and, and honor and joy. Joy marks a Christian life. We should, not, uh, we should not be going about saying, I guess I've got to tell him about Jesus. He looks pretty bad. No, we should have joy in our heart. We should have brokenness about that person. We should go tell about Jesus. And also another way is that much like Ananias and Sapphira is tithing and serving for the world to see. And I talk about this so much. Like you'll see it on Facebook. You'll see the person who is walks up to the homeless guy and he's like, check this out. Hey, bro, you look down. I got a hundred bucks for you. Here you go. Go have a good day. Or you turn around and you might say, hey, here's a plate of food. Hey, bro, check this out. Take a selfie with me. Who's getting the glory for that one? That's a wrong act of service. That's a wrong act of sacrifice. Jesus talks about it specifically uh, to the Pharisees in, in the book of Matthew. Tithing for the world to see. Is, and I'm not saying by not writing your name. I mean, do so. Write your name on, on those tithing envelopes. Um, th- th- that's a fine thing. But it's when you put this amount of money in the offering and then you turn around and you say, I just gave $500. That's all I had in my paycheck, but I gave it all to the Lord and he's going to bless me. Come on with all that, guys. That's not how we do these things. Give in secret. Give with your right hand without your left hand knowing. So that's one way that we cultivate a biblical worldview. And let me look, let's look at uh, verse 2 real quick, and we'll figure out another way to cultivate a biblical worldview. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So how can we prove what is good, what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? Well, it's by not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how do we renew our minds? You can look on the slides here and I'll, and I'll show you um, Psalm 1, 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. And then Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
So we renew our minds through the ministering of the Holy Spirit. We renew our minds through the study and the meditation of God's Word. Amen? And this is just a side note here, and really I should have put it in one of my main points. Um, but an essential point to having a biblical worldview is to, is to have, uh, or an essential point to having a biblical worldview is to have a biblical worldview that is correct. Huh. To have a biblical worldview that is correct, we must come under the absolute authority of Scripture. That's what I should have said. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that, he may, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the words here, given by inspiration of God. The ESV paints it perfectly, and they had the perfect translation of this. It says is breathed out by God. And so, so the Greek word really means that it, it comes from his innermost being, that it breathes out by him. So it, it's literally the exact words of God in this Bible, amen? It's not just man's words written down, but it was an inspiration breathed out by God. God used the man. So the word of God is perfect because we know God is perfect, right? There's no lie or injustice or sin inside of God. So the word is perfect. It's complete. And it's also authoritative for everything in life. And what I mean by authoritative is that it's the, it's, the, it's the instruction manual. It's the operating system. It's the law that we operate and live by. It's how we see the world as right or wrong. It's how we have a set of morals, principles, and absolutes. It's how we operate through life. And so there you have it. A biblical worldview is cultivated by first coming to know the mercies of God. And we've seen that in verse 1. And it's coming to the, uh, coming to the grace of God at the cross of Jesus Christ and being saved from sin, then presenting ourselves to God in worship through obedience to studying and meditating on His Word. So how else can we have a biblical worldview other than by knowing Christ and knowing what his word says? You can't have one if you don't read the Bible. You can't have one if you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You can't have a biblical worldview if you don't know Christ. You may think that you do. You might have those people who have grown up in church their entire life and they, and they say that I have a biblical worldview. I know what's right and what's wrong because they've sat under the preaching for so long. But there's no real heart change in their life and they go about living however they want to. That means that they're liars. They don't conform to um, the biblical worldview. Or they're not being transformed by the renewing of their mind. But instead they're being conformed into the ways of this world. Amen. And so now that we've learned to cultivate this biblical worldview, let me introduce us to three major points of a correct biblical worldview. And I just call these the three D's of a biblical worldview. And we'll start with the depravity of man. Um, so in order to have an accurate uh, worldview, we must have an accurate understanding of man's sin nature. <laughs> So say the depravity of man. This begins in the, uh, in the garden, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. So Adam, or God makes Adam in, 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 out, of the, out of the dust of the earth and he makes Eve out of his flesh. And what, does, and what does he do? He tells him not to eat of this tree. So the serpent sneaks in and he's all sneaky and all that stuff. And he deceives Eve. And what does Eve do? She eats the fruit. She gives some to her husband. So they're, they're standing there. They realize that they're naked. They try to clothe themselves. So they run off when God comes in. He says, where are you? He says, I'm over here. He said, uh, who told you that you were naked? He said, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? And he said, it was the, wo the woman that you gave me. Many of us men, we say that same thing. God, it was the girl that you gave me. 
But no, and, and so that was sin. They thought that they could be their own God. They, they separated themselves from what God said to do. They believed the lies of the devil and they fell. And out of that fall, God brought what? A curse to mankind. He brought a curse to women and childbearing even of pain, right? And, and affliction. And he brought a curse. He brought up thorns and thistles instead of, I would imagine, luscious grass and flowers and those things. Sin crept into the world and, 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 uh, and God allowed there to be a curse on it. And so out of that, though, we're all, and, and, and we can look at Romans chapter 5, uh, verse, verse 12, and it really sum it up. Therefore, just as through man, or just, through, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. And so we see this, that we're also born with the sin nature. In Psalm 51, verse 5, he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So we're all, we all have this sin nature, and, and it starts in the womb. And all people sin. We can look at Ecclesiastes 7.20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And then Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one person in this life that's not a sinner. Our sins may look different than the others. Um, the person who's well together and put together, their sin may look different than the homeless guy on the side of the road who drinks and smokes all day long. But all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All are in need of a Savior. And, it's, and, it, and this depravity of man, is, is, it's far more than just being a sinner, though. It's, it's the fact that we're unable to cultivate our own righteousness. Like, without, and that's why, that's why we see the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit has to come into our lives, transform our hearts. As Ezekiel 36 says, um, that I will remove your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh that feels and is able to understand um, that, that we're a sinner and that we need a Savior. We're unable to do it on our own. It's a total act of God. We have a response to make, yes, but it's His work. We're unable to cultivate this righteousness. And let me just read to you out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 uh, through 3. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and we by nature children of wrath just as the others, born into this world as sinners, unable to cultivate our own righteousness. How on earth could we be saved? By God's grace. By God's uh, regeneration of the Holy Spirit. By Christ coming into our lives and setting us free. Transforming our hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Thank you, Lord. Let's move on to our second D. The doctrine of God. So we see that God in His fullness, and as Baptists and as any Bible-believing Christian, we believe that God is triune. He is a trinity, that there is uh, one God. They're three in one. I'm not going to try to explain it. So anyways, the, and that consists of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a thing, if we try to explain it in any other way, there's a heresy called modalism. It's a big thing. Anybody that tries to explain the trinity as water, being H2O, an ice cube, steam, and whatever, stop it. An egg, the sun, stop it. You can't describe God in that way. It's called modalism. It's a heresy. 
So we look at the Father, um, and he was oh, he's always existed. He's always been here. So it's different than the Darwinist or the secular humanist point of view who believe in science. They think that um, a Big Bang theory, that there was never a God, that something, uh, two rocks collided together, had this cosmic fart, and out came the world, a, a laughing baby, um, the sunsets, all these beautiful, joyous things. Come on with all of that. Well, God always has been. And look at Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So having a biblical worldview is having the right doctrine of God, having the right doctrine of the Father. Um, And the next point is God the Son. We can see this in John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 14, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, always has been. He's always existed. He, didn't, he wasn't created, as the Jehovah's Witness would believe, that he was a created being like an angel or something, or that the Gnostic would believe. That's absolutely not true. The Son of God has always existed, and I can show you by scriptures here in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And then verse 14. And the Word... God, who was eternal, the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. He was God born in the flesh. To have an accurate worldview, Christian worldview, biblical worldview, we have to understand that that Jesus was both man and God. And then God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God was was there always too. He was always existent. He was always eternal as well. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. The earth was formed, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He was there. He oh, he was present in creation. And we look at John 15:26, but when the helper comes, who I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. That's the Trinity all in one verse right there in John 15, 26. you got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all working in salvation, all working in the personhood of God, of who he is. So God in his fullness was active in creation, and God in his fullness is active in salvation as well, in which salvation is entirely accomplished by God. So I want you guys to lean in and stay close with me here. Uh, salvation was predetermined by the Father. From be, the scriptures say before the foundations of the world. It was accomplished by the Son on the cross. Amen. Couldn't happen any other way but the perfect blem, or blemish-free, or blem, whatever. The perfect Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, without blemish or defect. And it's worked out in the Spirit. By the regeneration, by the drawing of God Himself as the Spirit. The Scripture says that it says this. Jesus says this. Nobody can come to me unless the Father first draws him. It's not something we're seeking. In fact, Romans even says that um, there's no fear of God before their eyes. There's none who seeks after God. In another part of God that we need to understand and know to have this biblical worldview is that He is returning. 
That the world is not going to get better, as some people may believe. In fact, it's going to be like the days of Noah, as Jesus has said. And what were they doing in the days of Noah? They were stiff-arming God, and they were nothing but evil in their eyes and in their hearts. They were eating, and they were drinking, they were going about this life. That Jesus will return, he will establish a literal thousand-year reign. There will be a great white throne judgment. There will be the Lamb's book of life open. And those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be sent to the second death of hell. And those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will go to heaven. That there is a real heaven there is a real hell. And then ultimately God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. So it's going to get better after time. And we'll live eternally with God if we are a Christian. And to, and to kind of close on this last point, I know I'm long, but stay in there with me, guys. Uh, the, the third point, the third D, is that it does not conform. You like that? I picked that up. It does not conform. You guys might get it. You see how the world's going today. So as born-again believers, we do not conform to the ways of this world. So when we put on our biblical worldview glasses, we cannot see in shades of darkness. When we look through everything like this, we don't see through shades of darkness. We can only perceive reality through the Word of God. So when it comes to issues in morality um, and politics that are evident in the world today, such as issues like LGBTQ agenda, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, abortion, a euthanasia, and other forms of Marxism. We cannot agree with these that God hates or go along with them if we hold to a biblical worldview. And let me say something on Black Lives Matter real fast. All lives matter. Eternal lives matter. It doesn't need to be twisted and conformed to this Marxist agenda All lives matter. God cares about all people. There is no partiality with God. So let's start with the LGBTQ agenda. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. And I'm sure there's more points that they've added on to those things by now. It's disheartening to see that many Christians have a distorted view of God. There's even some um, seminaries who are signing and allowing these things to be taught in their schools. And they're co-signing for these movements. And it's sad to see. It's sad to see that people think of God as this hippie on a cloud holding up a peace sign and that he just loves everybody. God does love the world, but he hates sin. And what is homosexuality? What is transgender? What is these insane pronouns that they're trying to make us use? What are those things? They're sin. And we have to stand against them. And if you don't believe me, try me. Because the Bible says that God created two genders in the garden, male and female. There's no other room. There's no he or there's no, there's only he and she, him and her. There's no they and them or zip and zap and zoom and boom. There's none of that. The Bible says this, that homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord. Look at Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as a woman. It is an abomination. And we think of CRT and intersectionality. This is a a Marxist and demonic movement. And the Bible says in response to this that we are all descendants of Adam. We're all descendants of Adam. That there is, in a sense, no race. Yes, we're different in ethnicity. We're different in color. Um, We may speak a different language, but we're all descendants of Adam. We're all the same. We all bleed red. And that we are all made in the image of God. And that all man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So we don't need a man-made theory to tell us how to fix humanity. Because yes, racism is real and it is a real sin. But what's the answer to racism? Is it rioting? No. Is it defunding the police? No. Is it man-made theories? No. What's the answer to racism? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Racism is a sin and the answer to racism is the gospel. That's it. That's the final answer. That's all we need. We talk about abortion, the sad annihilation of unborn human life. It breaks my heart to think that there's people who are so confused and so disoriented and believing a lie and so full of sin that they would kill an unborn human life. So we hear words like this in the abortion, in the, uh, in the, uh, abortion movement. My body, my choice. We hear pro-choice arguments rooted in the murder of unborn human beings. And the world would love to allow abortion all the way to full term. Eight months, nine months. They would love to allow somebody to kill a baby. And we'll go into more detail on this in the later weeks that I get to preach. I'm not going to go into all the detail on this, but we'll talk about abortion in one whole sermon um, here, here sometime next month. But the world denies, in abortion, the world denies the humanity of an unborn child. Do you know what they call that unborn child? They call him or her simply an it. They call it a fetus. They'll call it tissue. They'll call it cells. They'll call it anything than what it is. Dignity, full of life, made in God's image, a human being, a little baby. What does God's word say? God's word says that life begins at conception. Amen. So if we look at this slide, um, Psalm uh, Psalm 139, 13 through 16. For you formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, which is a, an analogy, a metaphor, an illustration of the mother's womb. 16. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they are all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. He's already put in his book the days that baby would live. And then we also look at things such as um, when John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, Elizabeth, sees the newly conceived Jesus Christ in his mother's womb, in Mary's mother's womb, what does this baby do? He leaps at the life that's in her mother's womb, in Mary's mother's, or in Mary's womb. You think of Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 where he says, I've already put a calling on your life. In your mother's womb, I put this calling on there. He's got a plan and he's got a purpose. God's word says this in Exodus 20 verse 13. Thou shall not murder. What does killing a baby in the womb, what is that? It's murder. It's not, it's not, um, it's not um, freedom. It's not giving... Um, the woman a chance not have to have a baby she didn't want. Well, you should have thought about that before you moved on in doing the acts that you committed. I'm sorry, I need to move on. But abortion is murdering an unborn human that, it, and it's, that is full of dignity and created in the image of God. So I want you guys to heed verse 2 here. Do not be conformed to the ways of this world. So the Christian worldview cannot tolerate these modern movements in the world today that I just talked about, such as LGBTQ, CRT, abortion, those things that they're trying to impress on us and impress on our kids in school. So we cannot be duped into placing the worldview glasses of secular culture over our eyes. 
We must stand against these movements through the preaching of the entirety of God's word and the proclamation of the gospel and by viewing everything through the lens of the Bible. This is how we should see. Just like that. The Christian worldview does not see in shades of darkness, only vibrant colors of God's mercy and grace, faithfulness, justice, and provision. And I want to say this. And that we're shaping our kids back here at Waymaker Baptist Church. We're shaping our kids in childcare to have this worldview, to refute the secular um, ideologies, the secular teachings that they're trying to teach our kids in school right now. They're trying to tell them and show them that, that a boy can use the girl's bathroom because he called himself a girl. They're trying to teach them what pronouns do you want to be called by. They're trying to teach them these crazy secular things, guys. And I'm not trying to stand on this soapbox, but I want you guys to know that we must have this worldview and we must train our kids in the right way. Amen. And so that's what we're trying to do back there. We want to raise up world changers that can stand up against our teacher and say, I'm a boy, I'm a girl because God made me this way and I'm nothing else. So you may say, Pastor, I struggle with homosexuality. Pastor, I've had an abortion. What news is there for me? You just beat me down. What news is there for me? And I say this, forgiveness in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness at the foot of the cross. There's no sin too great that He cannot cleanse you of. Who was the Apostle Paul but a murderer? He persecuted his own people, God's own people. He persecuted Christians. And he saved him, didn't he? Who does God use? He uses prostitutes. He uses murderers. He uses the slow to speak. He uses um, those that are not eloquent, the lowly things of the world, to shame the wise. There is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. You don't have to hang on to it anymore. Repent from your sins because it's just like any other sin. And come to Christ. He is mighty to save. And it's just like any other sin, sin in the sense of its separation from God. The truth is that if you've never repented from your sins, you are here today. And you're here today, your sins are ever before you and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you are born again, if you've been forgiven of your lawless deeds and, and, and are made new, remember that, that you're forgiven of your lawless deeds and you're made new. You don't have to hang on to the guilt of an abortion or the guilt of your former struggles with homosexuality or your guilt of racism or any of that stuff. You can let it go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Amen. So almost all of us have fallen into these categories, guys. Almost all of us have. And what's this? The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the homosexuals, they're in the same category as the thieves and the greedies and the drunken and and the verbal abusers and the swindlers. They're in the same category. The sin is forgiven the same way by being justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. God is mighty and he's able to save even the most detestable sinner. My prayer today is that we as Christians would begin to live and see through the lenses of the Bible. That we would leave here better equipped and with an accurate Christian worldview. That we would not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds 
proving what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. I hope we can leave here today with a biblical worldview and know how to stand against secular culture. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for freedom. We thank you for uh, God calling us a slave to you. Father, as we look at the world and we look at um, the things that are going on in the media and all this craziness, God, it weighs us down and it makes us sick. We see that our kids are being trained up in unrighteousness at schools, a place that we used to be able to trust uh, where God was, is now a place where the devil plays. So, Lord, we pray that uh, in this room right now, you would raise up people who, uh, who are willing to do homeschool with children, uh, to teach them a biblical worldview and train them up in righteousness. And I pray, God, in this room, you would raise up mothers and, and fathers who, who put on biblical worldview glasses and go home and teach their sons and their daughters what the true biblical worldview to have is and what we stand against. And that standing for something or calling somebody by a pronoun is sin and it's unrighteous. So, Lord, we pray, uh, we pray, God, that you would allow us to live a life cultivating the biblical worldview each and every day before your throne in study, in prayer, in fasting, in all those things, and help us, God, to see the world for what it is and to be the change in the world that the world needs. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.